0: Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com
1: I'm April Voki, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. This episode is made possible by Canvas Pop. Canvas Pop makes it easy for you to turn any photo into a piece of art ready to hang on your wall. They can even turn Instagram and Facebook photos into gorgeous canvas art or custom framed photo prints. If you're anything like me, photos from fishing trips and experiences can tend to accumulate and get lost in the busyness of day-to-day life. When CanvasPop reached out to me, I realized a canvas print of my fishing trips would be the perfect way to display my photos. Ordering was incredibly easy. I just went to canvaspop.com where I live chatted with Julie from their customer support team. She walked me through the process, helped me pick what size would work best, as well as the best framing option. I even received a proof of what the print would look like before it was sent to print. So if you're looking for a fabulous gift idea for Christmas, if you order by December 17th, your print will be delivered in time to be unwrapped under the tree. Better still, Canvas Pop is giving all Anchored listeners 50% off orders of $100 or more. Just use the code ANCHORED at checkout, or you can visit www.canvaspop.com. I can't wait to see what you get hung up on your walls. Don't forget to use the hashtag CanvasPopAnchored to show off your masterpiece. Russell Chatham is a world-renowned artist best known for his watercolor paintings. An avid fly fisher and hunter, it was inevitable that he would end up spending a major chunk of his life in Montana, where he further attached himself to the outdoors. In this episode, I meet with Russ in San Francisco, where we discuss his past, his fame, and some honest truths about his life behind closed doors.
2: I was uh, born in San Francisco, actually. We lived here in the city in, uh, over in Pacific Heights till I was nine. And, and then in 1949, we moved to Marin County.
1: Oh, okay. So still in California. Oh, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Well, you see, the thing is that I was born in 1939. Of course, the war started shortly thereafter. So for all those five years of the war... Life was very peculiar here. I mean, it was, my dad was an air raid warden, and, we, and all the windows in the houses were... Well, we had plywood over all our windows to darken them, and you were not allowed to drive at night with headlights on. Uh, everybody thought the Japanese were going to attack San Francisco.
0: Right.
2: And so there was even nets across the Golden Gate to keep the submarines out.
1: So when I did a, a tour through the city the other day, I noticed that there were all these structures that looked as though they once held tanks they did or um, or, cannons cannons. over
2: overlooking the Golden Gate Bridge yeah oh the whole thing both sides of the bay there's nothing but armaments
1: so you remember that
2: oh absolutely yeah and and my dad had a he was an air raid warden for the block for the block we lived on so he had a he had a helmet and he had a gas mask (laughs) that day and you know, you weren't allowed to, um, like I said, you couldn't drive with your with your headlights on. And every day, the garbage truck would come around and they had these caps that they'd go down the street and put the caps over the streetlight so that you couldn't see them from above. Oh. And so you could drive as long as you kept your headlights off. There was enough light to drive down the street.
1: That's terrifying. <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, that's what people thought. They thought that the Japanese were going to bomb San Francisco or at least come in Somehow, you know, and uh, like I said, they, they were fearful of, of ships coming in, you know, and also submarines. That, of course, obviously never happened. But it was also, it was also the scene of a, of a great social tragedy, which was that all of the Japanese who lived, who and there were a lot of them, who were actually citizens, born and raised in California, were put in concentration camps. Out in the valley or in Nevada, or you know there were these camps took all their stuff away, all their land, all their possessions you know it was horrible, I mean really, really horrible it 's a real black eye on uh, on the face of America today, and it's it 's pr- kind of pretty much in the news now because because the younger people didn't know all this and then when they find out they just can't believe it. <laughs> right.
1: Did your dad ever get called out to go and fight in the war?
2: No, he didn't. And and if you ask me why I can't answer because it never you know I don't think during the second world war there was any conscription. I think you I think if you signed up for the army or the you know for the armed forces. I think it was all voluntary. Oh. I think so. I, I could be. Maybe I'm not selling it correctly. But, but anyway, no. He was not in the. He wasn't in the war.
1: Did you have siblings growing up?
2: Yeah, I had uh, uh, two sisters and a brother that were two years and four years younger than me.
1: Oh, so you're the eldest. I'm the
2: oldest one. Yeah.
1: Okay. Now, where does it go from there? Where does the outdoor well, where then, the outdoors enter your life?
2: Well, then, right after the war, and I was probably seven. I would say, because they're pretty close after the war. The, the Golden Gate Bridge opened in 1939, the year I was born. Well, with the war on, and it, people it were slow to realize that you could now get to Marin County in five minutes. Oh. Before the bridge was built, you had to take a ferry boat. So, you know, it was an expedition to get to Marin County. So my dad, since I was, like I said, I was probably seven, I'm guessing, but that's probably about right. So my brother and sister, who were fraternal twins, were two years younger than me, so they were too young to do this. So my dad would p- take put me in the car, and he would drive across the bridge. And he knew he, he had a a, one, a family member that had a summer home out in a town. It's not a town; it's a, a community called Lagunitas. And there's a creek there, a beautiful creek, which is known as sometimes known as Lagunitas Creek or Paper Mill Creek or. Uh, or San Geronimo Creek and and he would go over there and he would fish a little bit and he would also lower uh, screen traps to catch crawfish because he liked to eat them. Oh. So I would help him do that and, and fish sometimes too but really primitive fishing. I mean, they were baby steelhead is what they were but we didn't know that. He didn't know it and I didn't know it, of course. But anyway, uh, so that was a kind of an early imprint and then On my mother's side, that we have uh, her uh, father's father came over to this country around 1860, 55 or 60, and bought land down in the Carmel Valley down south of here. And they began ranching. Before the gold rush? It was right after the gold rush.
1: When was the gold rush in California?
2: 49, 1849.
1: Oh, it was that early? Yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah. It was still kind of going on. I mean, they were still. Raping and pillaging up in the mountains there yeah. you know? but uh, but anyway, down there then we spent summers on the ranch, and there was a beautiful creek uh, tributary of the Carmel River that went through the ranch and there in those days, there were a lot of steelhead in the Carmel river, mm-hmm. and of course, the f- little fish that we caught were baby steelhead, but nobody nobody really ever stopped to think about that right. You know, my father called them speckled brook trout because they were living in a brook and they had spots on them. Okay, and that's how rumors started. <laughs> that's right. So, and but I figured out by the time when we moved over to the country, which it was Marin County, we were in San Anselmo. I fi- I had figured out by that time that that these little fish were baby steelhead because I, even by the time I was ten or eleven, I was you know just obsessed with with fishing of any kind and I read the fishing magazines I read field and stream and outdoor life so I knew that I knew what these fish were so we would catch them my 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 neighbor my buddy that was my age we would catch them in the creeks over there and uh, but we had agreed that we would never kill one because we knew what they were
1: even back then was there any sort of conservation spin on steelhead no nobody back
2: then? Ate, no nothing
1: so what, what was the inclination to want to protect them for you back then?
2: Well, because we knew they were, we, we, we knew that they, if when they grew up, they came back.
1: <laughs> oh, you didn't want to kill the little ones. Right. Ah, gotcha. You
2: yeah. know, and I mean, I to be honest with you, in all the years I steelhead fish, and I mean, I'm certain I've caught 10,000 steelhead, I can only remember ever killing three.
1: Are you serious?
2: Dead serious. And at that, at that time, I was considered a crazy person. Because you do not throw fish away.
1: Right.
2: When you catch a fish, you take it home. You know, and the limit was five a day. You could kill five a day, and everybody—if you got five, you killed five. Right. I mean, I didn't, but but many people did. But but there were a few, there were a few people that, particularly, the ones that peeled off into fly fishing, which which there was a core group of fly fishermen in the late 1940s. Well, actually, before that, they, they, before the war in the nineteen thirties, and they they came from San Francisco, most of them. And they, you know, those people, nobody with a with any kind of conscience is going to kill five, ten pound fish. What the hell are you going to do with them? How many can you eat? Right. You know. And it was the same with, with the striped bass. And the game warden over there, his name was Al Giddings, a very, very good warden. You know, he never bothered ordinary people. If they didn't have their license, he'd send them down and buy one and all that. But he was looking for the real poachers, the people spotlighting deer and selling. Mm. People would catch, you know, striped bass and other fish and sell them to the fish dealers here. He wanted those guys. Yeah. But he but even Al, you know, was when I, when I first met him, and I was only 16 years old, and I, I pretty much threw everything I caught back. I mean, I take one of something home because my, I, I did like to eat them. My dad loved to eat them. He says, "God for God's sake, bring me one." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? But he, you know, he would he would just shake his head. He said, "You're going to throw that one back too, huh?" You know? I said, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what
1: Were you in high school during all of this?
2: I was in high school from uh, nineteen fifty three until nineteen fifty seven.
1: You did finish.
2: Oh, yeah, but I was fishing every day with, during high school. <laughs>
1: yeah. Did you have friends who also fished?
2: I had one, my one friend who's no longer living. He and I were the only two kids we knew that fished uh, out of the whole high school. He lived about from here to, to where Jimmy Adams had his stuff set up back there apart. And we fished this little creek, Sleepy Hollow Creek, San Anselmo Creek that went by the house. And we, I'm sure we caught and released every single fish in it. I'm absolutely positive.
1: When does the fly fishing enter your life?
2: Well, we knew about fly fishing because we read about it in the magazines. And my cousin, uh, my my mother's sister, was married to a man. And, and, he, and he and his wife, my mother's sister and her husband, were both artists, as was my grandfather. And his name was Phil Wood. He loved to fish. His father had been a doctor and had fished in the 1920s and 30s. And he had seen... The the father would would go by stagecoach up to like Shasta or, or the the northern rivers, come back with with these huge trout on ice in the stagecoach and bring them to the cabin on the Russian River. So anyway, so so he Phil, my uncle, was, you know he was all into it before the in the 1930s. So after the war, uh, when when my, my cousin Tom and I got to be well, we were like 12, 13. He said, you guys wanna try it? They said, Yeah, you know, so he had several he had five or six fly rods and reels and stuff. And we came out here. He brought us out here.
1: To San Francisco.
2: Well we yeah, but they lived in San Francisco. I was in Marin. Right. But I would we were very close, so I would come over here. And Phil would take us out to the casting pool.
1: Oh, you mean the pond itself? Yeah. I should back up for our for the listener. So we are currently sitting in a truck, a very hot truck. Are you okay? <laughs> I'm fine. Okay, you just let me know <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. when you need me to roll windows down. The reason the windows aren't rolled down is because we're at rama and the announcer is very microphone happy right now. Um, so that's that's where we're at. That's where we are. Yes, everybody, you heard me. I've got Russell Chatham sitting in a truck.
0: It's so wrong.
1: But here we are. Um, so you came to the ponds.
2: So we came over here. And uh, the guy, I, I, I remember it. it's clear. I remember the first time we ever came here. Because Phil had figured this all out. I mean, at that time... The Sunset Line Company started making shooting heads about 1950, 51.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And Phil caught on to that right away. So when And he said, this, that's what you really kind of need to have. You're supposed to have to go steelhead fishing. But a lot of guys that hadn't really caught on to that yet. So so Phil had, for example, a uh, there was a famous tournament caster named Marvin Hedge. He lived in Oregon. And he came down here, and he had he had developed this fly line it was a weight forward silk line because that was uh, the, or in the 40s and the early 50s silk was the only material mm-hmm. and it was called a marvin hedge 7 taper line and it was it was designed to for long casts for steelhead and phil had one of those and he but he gave the rod that he gave to tom and and, and the other one to me put the shooting head on. Well, we didn't have any idea what you're supposed to do with it. You know, we came out here and guys went out on the thing and were flailing around out there. And the the guys from the club came over and said, here, you you guys look like you need a little help. (laughs) And uh, so they kind of showed us what to do, you know, and then from there. We didn't, you know, we didn't come over here and hang out all the time because, you know, we would go to the Russian River. I said, well, we don't need to practice at this pool anymore. We need to practice in the river. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So the first thing we fished for, uh, I think the first season we fished for shad, which there was quite a few in the Russian River. On the fly? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. We caught them. (laughs) And then then as the, the shad run this time of year, May and June, and then and when the fall came around in October, November, December, would, then we thought, well, this is the time when the steelhead run. Right? Phil knew all about it. He, he, you know, he's, uh, as long as the water wasn't too high and dirty and all that, he knew when to go fishing, you know, when the water was dropping and all. So we started doing that. And by the time, you know, I was like, say, not yet old enough to drive, but let's say 15 I just was like crazy to get that driver's license so I could take myself to the rivers. <laughs> that, that
1: was exactly me at 60. I counted down from 13 to 16. I did. I've got to just,
2: oh, are you kidding almost me? Almost there. I just was like, I said, I've got to get where the real fish are. Come on, come on, come on, yeah. come on. <laughs> and we had real fish here. I mean, I my buddy that lived next to me in San Anselmo, you know, we figured out, pretty early on that that in the winter time when the creek came up that's when the steelhead came in mm. and i'll never forget the first time i saw one and uh i it was probably 13 12 or 13 i i don't remember but right in there mm-hmm. and i was still we were still fishing with with worms for the for the little guys you know and i was walking down along this road and I, I heard a splashing noise and I looked down at the creek and here was this like six or eight pound steelhead thrashing his way through this riffle and I just I just started screaming you know and he got into this like a hole like a like a deeper place you know so I just turned around I ran as fast as I could back to his house which wasn't that far it was like a five minute run and he was there and I says Kelly you gotta you're not you gonna believe this And so I, so we knew, I mean, our knowledge was like pieced together stuff from the magazines and everything. And we knew about, we knew about, we each had a spinning outfit, Mm -hmm. so we knew about lures and stuff. So, but this creek was as wide as this car. I mean, it was, you know, and I'd seen a couple of others and I thought there's got, there's steelhead in that pool and what are we going to do about it? So I got a flatfish and I tied it on to the rod didn't I didn't have a, I, there was, I had a reel but you couldn't cast in there, so he was down below me somewhere. I went around to the up to the head of the pool, and the pool was about as, twice the size of this car. And and I took some line out and I lobbed this flatfish down underneath these bushes and let it go into the pool, you know, and started pulling it back and I could feel this flatfish going like this, and it stopped. <laughs> and I had the steelhead on yeah oh my god I mean I was a Skelly god damn Jesus! and we got it in and, uh, and we, I brought it up the thing and of course the flatfish has all these gang hooks in it and everything I said and there was a there was a pocket in the rocks of a deep uh, uh, a hole you know I said keep the fish alive in here run back to your house and get a camera <laughs> <laughs> he had one i didn't have a camera right he had some kind of a little brownie camera then he came back he took a picture i have it somewhere but i i was looking for it the other day. i can't find it but it's somewhere but anyway uh then we had to keep the fish under the water so it was still breathing and we had to get those damn treble hooks out of it right it's got like three two two or three sets of treble hooks i mean they're horrible you know, and you know, we did. We got him out and put the thing back in the creek. And then after that, in the next couple of winters, we knew what we would do is go down in the high water and fish with flatfish in these holes and we would catch the steelhead. And of course, that was completely illegal. <laughs> it was to protect the steelhead. They
1: had regulations. There were back regulations
2: then. back then. But get this. You could kill 10 of the babies anytime you wanted per day. Now, figure that one out. So anyway, then then once, you know, I mean, the minute I got that driver's license, I bought like a $50 wreck of a car, I was out of there. I mean, I was out of the house. That was it for me. And even though I was still, um, I still had, I still had a year of high school, I think, or maybe I was out of high school. But anyway, um, now I could, you know, I could go to the Russian River when I wanted, go up the coast. And the mouth of Paper Mill Creek, where the creek that where my dad took me, mm-hmm. emptied into Tamales Bay, where I live right now. Oh. And it had a huge run of silver salmon and a pretty good run of steelhead and quite a few striped bass in the season. So there was lots to fish for.
1: Did you have any idols at the time? Like, was there anyone from the magazine who you, you really looked up to?
2: Well, you know, the, as far as the magazines were concerned, my favorite guy was Ted Trueblood, and but there were but in those days there were there were professional fishermen. Each magazine had their own ones. I mean, for example, uh, Outdoor Life, uh, their famous fisherman was Joe Brooks. In those days, those guys were really experts. I mean, they weren't like today, where you get some jerk off, you know. They, I mean.
1: I'm happy you said it. <laughs> I
2: mean, and I mean, uh, Jack O'Connor was a hunter, a hunter's hunter, and he was the hunting editor, shooting editor of Outdoor Life, and uh, Field and Stream. I, you know, I was I like to shoot, and we, and my dad hunted doves and quail and, th- and ducks, and I I still do. I love it, but we, I was more focused on the fishing. So Ted Trueblood was the guy that I focused on. Well, I knew about Bill Shad because of the of our house on the Russian River. You know, I mean, even when we were twelve or thirteen years old, if you, when we were, my cousin and I would go down to fish for black bass or whatever. You know, there was a guy who lived down the down the road, and uh, and he would see us going down with our fishing rod and everything, and he would say, he'd say you you guys should figure out where where that bill shad is fishing cuz that's where <laughs> the fish are. <laughs> and so I mean I and I was so completely crazed into it that one from the time that I got the car probably even for a couple of years before that I mean I fished every day for 3000 consecutive days. I mean <laughs> I, nothing else existed for me. I didn't what? go to school. I flunked out of school. I didn't give a shit about anything.
1: Wait, so you didn't finish university? No. What, okay, where does the art, and I'll come back to the fishing, obviously, but where does art enter your world oh, apart I, from being born into an art family?
2: Well, that's where it comes from. Okay. Because when, when my cousin and I were, I think I was eight and he was seven, or I might have been nine and he was eight, I don't know. His father, Phil, the guy that showed us to fly fish, and his and my mom's sister you know we, we would go to the ranch in the summertime you have to remember we did there's no TV there's no we didn't even have a radio there's no distractions so they said it's time for you guys to learn how to paint so they gave us this paint box
0: yeah
2: and, and paint and they and, and, he's, and <laughs> you're not going to believe this I have a photograph of me making my first painting that my aunt took with a box brownie and I still have the painting oh, oh my
0: goodness you know
2: and they said, and here's our art training. So they said, put out the white, the blue, the red, the yellow, blah, hair like this. Here's your thing. you got turpentine or paint thinner. We actually used coal oil, I think. And here's your brush. Here's a rag. Um, now get out of here <laughs> and don't come back <laughs> till dark.
1: <laughs> so what, and they sent you out? Yeah. To go and paint landscapes? Yeah. Oh, now it's all making sense now. It's all making sense. Okay, did you love it at the time?
2: Well, I, I, I tried to eat the paint. You, you just I, adored I, it. I smelled so good, I thought, it got to be good to eat. Well, trust me, it's not. <laughs> I believe you. I'll take your word for it. But um, And then, you know, my cousin was, he still paints today, but he was, a you know, he was more of a normal kid, you know. he I mean... By the time he was 16 or 17, he was looking to get girlfriends and stuff. I never spoke to girls. I didn't have time for that.
0: <laughs> and uh,
2: I just, you know, all through, from the time I was nine, all through grade school and all through high, after school, I had a bike, I had a fishing rod and a paint box. And that's what I did after school. I never associated with any of the other kids. I never went to school functions. I never went to, you know, it's all I did after school. And then once I got the car, shit, that was over. I just had the boat on top of the car, shotgun and twenty two in the back, fly rod in the front. <laughs> and, and we just, just curl them up inside the car. <laughs> and uh, every day, you know, not necessarily all day every day, yeah. you would have, you know, if I was going out to the country, well, if the tide was right for fishing, I'd be fishing, mm-hmm. you know. And if the tide was coming in or was high or was wrong, I'd just whip the paint box out, and make paint a couple of paintings.
1: What What about making a living? If you didn't finish, and why did you drop out of college? Was it because you just had better things? To do? I did.
2: You know, I only went to like one year of junior college. I didn't. I just I couldn't mm-hmm. concentrate. I wasn't interested, you know. And uh, I couldn't make a living. I had no way to make a living actually what happened was it's kind of interesting, really. And I'm thinking about it because I'm living right near where I first uh, lived when I was married. There was a woman who was very smart, and she was teaching art history. She was teaching Asian art history, printmaking and drawing at the, at the little community college. And I took, a, I took her classes. And I was fascinated because I'd never sp- really even spoken to a woman before, or a girl. I mean, I just didn't. I just if I saw one coming, I just crossed the street or get out of the way. You were one of
1: those guys. <laughs> and I always chased you guys in school. <laughs> I loved that. Stuff.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, so so this woman Doris and I started hanging out together, and I fell in love with her, and we got married. She was twenty years older than I was. Well, I was, how old were you? I was only like twenty. That's incredible. Yeah, and she she had about. 10 degrees from university. She had master's degrees, PhDs, you name it. And so I try, I couldn't, I, there was nothing I could do that could really make a living for us. I mean, buck 50 an hour is not going to cut it. Yeah. Even in those days where the rent for our house was only 50 bucks. It's hard for people to understand today that, that people, people like electricians and plumbers and uh, carpenters and things like that made a hundred dollars a week. Right. You know, they made four hundred dollars a month, and they they could live pretty well on that. They had, their wife didn't have to work. They had a car, two cars. They had a house. They had. So she went back to teaching, and I, you know, I painted all the time. But I mean, of course, I wasn't selling anything. They weren't any good, but I didn't. Care and I didn't know any different, so I just kept doing it and doing it and doing it. Kind of tried to take care of our daughter when she was little.
1: Oh, so you did have a baby? Yeah,
2: we had a, a, do- a daughter, but I never did. You know, really, she was she was a little crazy. <laughs> Doris was. Yeah, and uh, I couldn't. I really couldn't. I finally had to leave, but it was a horrible thing for me because I had you know in my mind. I, I, this marriage was for life. I yeah. mean, I didn't, you know, didn't get into it in a casual way.
1: And how old were you at this time?
2: Let's see, I, I we started seeing each other when I was 18, 66. So we were together eight years. It was very painful, very, uh, very horrible. It would, it would be with it. a
1: child too, it's hard.
2: Yeah, it, it left a real scar on me for 20 years after that. But I I, st- I painted my heart out the whole time. Oh. But of course, I couldn't sell anything. I mean, they weren't any good. Do you, you,
1: know? do you think that, I mean if you look back now, being so accomplished, when you look at your original paintings, do you still think that they weren't very good or did you just think that at the time? No,
2: I think they're no good even now. (laughs) Okay. Okay. I mean, because they were they were what we call juvenilia, I mean they were I had no training, you know, I didn't go to art school, I didn't but I but the thing is that Doris had a huge library and she had she must have had three hundred art books. So I studied every single one from cover to cover. So I knew something and I, the, San Francisco didn't have, the museums in San Francisco didn't have much art. They really didn't. There was very, very little to see and I saw it all. So fortunately my grandfather was a great painter, you know, so I had him to, to lean on, to, 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 to focus on. And some of his friends were pretty good painters too. So, I mean, I had a, you know, as time passed, I mean, I was kind of getting the idea. And then I went to, um, um, when I met my second wife, Mary, we we went to Montana in 1971. Mm. Basically, the reason for that was that I had decided that I couldn't, that there was no way I could make a living. I mean, I couldn't work on a $2 an hour job for five days a week. When was I going to mm. learn to paint or right. write? Right. I said, if we go to Montana where it's dirt cheap, and I'm never going to take another crappy job, I'm just going to paint. Right, I don't care how poor we are. You'll just have to put up. <laughs> and she was fine with that, and we we did okay. I mean, we rented a whole ranch for five hundred dollars a year, and I could I was starting to sell fishing stories. I made all my living as a writer from the time I was like twenty eight until I was thirty two or three.
1: So you're still really fishing hard at this point,
2: oh yeah,- yeah, really,, yeah, absolutely, yeah, and then you see what happened was in the in the, about the time that I was getting fixing to leave doris, and I you know, which I didn't want to do, I mean, believe me, it was a horrendous thing that uh that happened, you know, I caught that world record striper, well, suddenly, I was like one of the most famous life fishermen in the country,
1: just overnight,
2: yeah. It was in every newspaper. was syndicated in the Associated Press. My picture was in the New York Times and all over the country.
1: And how big was this world record?
2: Was thirty six pounds, and the the previous record was twenty nine. Mm. Was Joe Brooks caught it in nineteen twenty nine, I mean nineteen forty nine, and it was twenty nine pounds. So it had stood all that time, and there were basically no one. I was really the only one even fly fishing for stripers. There wasn't anybody else until the late 60s and into the 70s, then a few people kind of caught on to it and so forth. So that enabled me to sell these stories to these magazines. I mean, and the pay was kind of laughable, but, it, but you have to understand that the, the time, if I got $300 for a story, that was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Well, then when I became friends with Tom McGuane and Jim Harrison and some other people who were writers, they were doing some work for Sports Illustrated, which was the big time. And so I wrote a story in around 1970 or something, I can't remember, it might have been just when I got to Montana, and I sold it, to the first thing I'd ever submitted to Sports Illustrated, they bought. Well, they paid like thousands, and suddenly I'm going, whoa, (laughs) now I get it, (laughs) I know where I'm going.
1: Coming up, Russell and I continue our conversation. Again, thank you to Canvas Pop for making this episode possible. Made in America, all Canvas Pop prints are hand stretched by their expert craftsmen in their American production facility. What better Christmas gift for the special people in your life than a printed memory of a cherished moment or fish? Again, don't miss out. Canvas Pop is giving all Anchored listeners 50% off orders of $100 or more. Just use the code Anchored at checkout or visit canvaspop.com. Would you describe yourself as an ambitious man? No. Would you describe yourself How would you describe yourself? I, Apart from, you know, not being an A-type person. Well,
2: I mean, I I think I'm pretty I think I'm pretty easygoing.
1: You, you seem pretty easygoing.
2: You know, I mean, yeah. I don't I never had a career. I never wanted to get into the art world. I I I tried. I mean, I went to all these galleries and everything. I don't like these people. Oh, okay. You know, you know I mean, these people are assholes.
1: Yeah. You know, I
2: don't want to be in this construct you know and so I didn't and I thought I just don't care you know and and other I watched other people get into it and have their art dealers and do all this stuff that they did you know I said I'm not doing that I'm not doing that well then it was just absolute luck that I started to really learn to paint by the late 70s by 1980, let's say, I was I was getting reasonably okay and was able to sell a few things. And pretty soon, the next thing I knew, people were coming to Montana to see me. Right. I thought, I don't have to go see them. They come and see me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so just from the fishing stance, you've got Sports Illustrated. That's big time. And... Does it kind of peter off from there, and then you focus more on art? or Yeah, do
2: pretty they... much. Well, the funny thing is that it was around 1980, I guess. The kind of stories that I liked, to, I never told anybody where to fish or how to fish or how to tie their leader on or you know any of that. I just told stories, and the market for that petered out. The magazines didn't want to buy it anymore.
1: Uh, when did you find that it petered out?
2: Well, about 1980. Okay. And Sports Illustrated changed their entire format. They no longer wanted to buy any uh, freelance work, so that was gone. And the magazines like Field and Stream and Outdoor Life and the the standard hook and bullet magazines, they wanted to either tell the people where to fish or how to fish. And I said, I that I can't. I mean, why would I want to do that? It's too boring. I
0: mean,
2: (laughs) so and I thought, but well, besides that. I'm actually selling a few paintings now. Why don't you concentrate on seeing what you could do to, to, to help this situation out? So I said, well, okay, what do I need to do? Well, I wasn't going to get an art dealer. I didn't want to be in the art world. I said, but there's got to be some way to get around it. And I and so if I figure out that um, I did a show in New York by by going it wasn't in an art gallery it was in a, a really hip restaurant oh. and the friends of mine that were that had been at Sports Illustrated were now the editor of Time and Life magazine and and I so we set that up and I had an, you know an exhibition at this place that was not I mean it was kind of artsy but it wasn't a gallery you know and then I did one in San Francisco at a gallery I did one in Seattle. When I said I got to hit the cities, got to do L.A., got to do Seattle, blah blah blah, and they were all really successful.
1: But how was your name growing? I mean, I know how it was growing in fishing. How was it growing in the art world?
2: I don't. You know, I'm not sure I can really answer that. But I'll tell you what: when we did the show in New York, it came on the heels of there was a a, the, the the People Magazine sent a reporter out to Livingston, and to to because of the fact that there were writers there and blah blah blah, but it turned out that she wanted to more to write about me rather than these writers, and so 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 this article comes out in People magazine, you know, which is millions of circulation, right? It's
1: still enormous.
2: Yeah, it's huge. I mean, and of course she and I start having an affair instantly. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so she helped me set the show up in New York. It was the most heavily attended private exhibition in, that the city had ever seen. There were so fucking many people came to the opening that the police had to had to close the streets around this restaurant and block the streets off. There were there was I I kind of forget, but there was something like two or three thousand people milling around trying to get into this little place that you couldn't even get 200 people in it.
1: This would be all over the news.
2: It was, yeah. And so then I did one in Seattle, and the same thing happened because a friend of mine knew the editor of the Seattle Times, so they sent a reporter over to Montana, and they did the longest story they'd ever done in the Sunday mag. I figured out the Sunday magazine in a big city newspaper is the one thing everybody reads of course so you got to get your story in there mm. <laughs> so so we did it was the longest piece there were so many people came to that Seattle thing I sat there for two and a half days signing books and posters I must have signed 10,000 posters I mean we and we sold all the paintings too by the way oh. you know <laughs> and I'm thinking wow you know
1: This is a success.
2: And then we did one in San Francisco, downtown on Sutter Street. And the same thing happened that happened in New York, that they had to call the police. They had TV cameras hanging off the building with the cameras coming down. And a lot of these fancy people from from Hollywood came up, like Jack Nicholson and people. So all the TV people wanted to get in on that. And so it was all over the news, all over the newspapers for like six or seven weeks. And there was there was at least 3000 people trying to get into this gallery they were they had poli- we had people parking cars you know valet parkers the cops were yelling at everybody they blocked off the street they pulled their squad cars so cars could come down Sutter street how, I
1: mean, how are you handling the fame i mean just it's it's you just don't seem like a fame
2: i'm not long. a no i know but i was having fun okay cuz okay. i was getting laid <laughs> And and I thought, this is the way to, this is how you do it. (laughs) And I mean, I wasn't really making very much, not any money that any person would think was a big deal, believe me. So it was fascinating to me. I mean, it was almost like I was out, I was outside of it looking in thinking, look at this, (laughs) look how weird this is, you know? And I don't know, it was just like, since I had never, ever dreamed, I, I had assumed my whole life that I would always be poor. And I would never make any money, and I didn't give a shit said so that's not why I'm doing this." but suddenly these people wanted to buy these things, and I thought, well, let them you know
1: were your parents around to see all this success?
2: Uh, my dad passed away in 75 or 70 he wasn't uh, my mother was around I, I don't know what the hell she thought I mean <laughs> you know it's funny, you know my dad all my life, he was just saying, you're, you know, you're nothing but a bum. You can't, you know, you, you can't go fuck around all your life just fishing and painting. Which is, what are you going to do? you got to get a job. And I, I thought to myself, I'm not getting a job. I don't want to get it. What, Doing what? You know, I don't know what kind of a job to get. I'm not qualified for anything, you know. And um, so, you know, it's one of those funny things that you're still trying to prove to your dead father that you're not a bum. <laughs> And my mother, you know, I actually started to make what for me was was pretty okay money. I mean, and I never wanted, I never bought new cars. I didn't have boats. You know, I didn't buy stuff. I just always drove a crappy car and I didn't give her care. But I bought her a new car and I'd sent her and her boyfriend on trips all over the place, you know, to uh, cruises and. What gave me a train ride all the way to Canada and New York, and New Orleans and back. She, she would have been
1: loving you. What about you? Did you start traveling at this point?
2: uh yeah, I did. I started traveling about around nineteen eighty but i but i I didn't have the money to really do it but but I got invited to go on some trips as a writer, like I got invited to go to New Zealand when these guys started the first fishing fishing international, the first fishing travel company. That Bob Nauheim and Frank Britannia started in in Santa Rosa, they needed me to hype their locations oh. because nobody traveled in those days to fish. So, so if we went to Norway, we went to New Zealand. I forget where else we went, and I got to go for free. All I had to do was write how great it was. But then you know later, once I had enough money to pay to actually pay to go somewhere. Then I start really started going. I mean, I went everywhere, everywhere I could think of. What I wanted to go.
1: Did you try to keep your fishing image and your artistic image separate?
2: There's a lot of crossover. A lot of the guys that are, that I, and women for that matter, who, you know, who like my work also happen to like fishing and hunting.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Makes sense. I mean, sense. it's like the sensibility somehow bleeds over, and you know, I, I not that I don't have people who. Have bought paintings and so forth. Who certainly don't fish or hunt. In fact, the two main guys I have now do not fish or hunt. But but there's a lot of them that do.
1: But the majority of your work is landscape.
2: Yeah, yeah. Did you much. ever
1: get into doing the crazy fish art that you see everywhere no. nowadays? Why didn't you go that route?
2: I, it didn't make any sense to me. I mean, How so? I, it's not. Well, I'm not an illustrator, for one mm. thing. I mean, I have done little illustrations for some books just because i needed to do it but i didn't you know i didn't want to become a i wasn't going to be a wildlife artist
1: right now when did you come back to california
2: i think 2011
1: oh gosh really recently so before i jump you to that point what happens after new york i'm assuming the affair with the publicist or the writer didn't last
2: very long yep
1: totally fair and then you come back to montana
2: uh oh yeah yeah no i was in montana um I, I very foolishly got married again to the only woman I've ever known that I don't like, that I don't speak to.
1: Rush, and you went from not liking, not having any relations with women
2: yeah. to,
1: to being all about the ladies.
2: That's right. <laughs> yeah, okay, I, so
1: that soured. I
2: did it up right. But the thing is, I, was, I, I did always... I mean, I love women, and I get along famously with... So I'm friends with pretty much every woman that I've ever either been married to or had affairs with today I mean seriously it's yeah. a pretty couple big handfuls <laughs> but you know we're all friends and i and I like that yeah but this one woman she saw me I was just starting to make some money she saw this show in San Francisco and she she went ah this guy this guy's a he's dumb as a post and he's ripe for the plucking and he's gonna make a bunch of money and I'm gonna get it Got it. And she did.
1: It it's a like, pretty popular club that you're in there. Yeah. <laughs> you're not alone. So I then, mean, this is all in Montana, and then, was, was there any other really big life-changing experience or any, any other big event that I'm missing that happened in Montana?
2: Yeah, probably. I mean, I I started learning to do lithography about 1980.
1: Oh, I read about this. Okay, can you just explain what that is?
2: Well, it's, it you know, you, you make the drawings on, a, on either a stone oh. or a metal plate, And there, and you you draw each color out by hand. It's uh, in fact, I'll send you just for fun. I should have grabbed one and brought it with me, but I didn't think of it. This video that I or this documentary I made about it. It's very complicated, Mm. but anyway, I got really good at it, and so I did that. And then you know, I I didn't want to. I got really fed up with publishing. I published three or four books with publishers, a couple in New York and San Francisco. And, different. and the books just went out of print. And I, I didn't like those people any better than I like the art people. So I thought, I'll just start my own publishing company. Oh, you did? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's Clark City Press. It's in that front of that book. There. That's you. Yeah. Very cool. So, and then, you know, I, I, I started going out with a, with a woman who was... Probably one of the great loves of my life. We were together fifteen years. Oh wow! It was the only woman I was ever faithful to. Fifteen years. I couldn't look at another woman. Oh. Anyway, no. It was ha- I was happy as a piss glamour. Yeah, no, know. Know. <laughs> no. That wasn't like oh, I'm disappointed <laughs> for no, you. No, that no. was
1: oh, this is awesome. No,
2: it was. It was, and I mean, I, I, I and I built a restaurant, oh. and I had built a really famous restaurant, and I ran it.
1: What? Where does this come <laughs> into the mix? Sorry, that that threw me off. I didn't see that coming. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I, had, I said well nobody saw that one coming <laughs> and people like i have a lot of friends in the restaurant business and chefs and owners and things like that and and when they see what i did they look at they say, you didn't do that you couldn't have possibly have done that like, is
1: it still in existence today? no
2: i sold it in 2007 because basically the reason i did was that it was so hard to to, to staff the kitchen up there, I was. I said I can't keep people. I, my my wait staff is all cool because they're making a lot of money. The kitchen is, is a disaster. I cannot keep it. So Liz and I were together during that all of that, and um, and then and the kind of at the tail end of that, uh, you know, I really got, had about six or eight really high roller clients, and I really made a lot of money. And I and I did what they told me to do, which was buy real estate. Well, that was fine, and had it, had the market not crashed, I would have made a, even more money. But the market did crash in 2008, mm-hmm. and I lost every fucking cent. I was homeless and broke. You? Yeah.
1: In 2000. That's not that long ago.
2: 2008, 2009.
1: Oh my god! And
2: I lost eleven. I lost 17 million dollars worth of stuff in Holy time hell. it takes to bake a cake, and I was out on the street. I didn't have a cent. I was. A, Banks came in and the, and the IRS came in, and I mean, I was, I was homeless, and I thought, what am I going to do? Where'd you stay? I came down here and I called my sister, and I said, I said, look, I don't. They took my house, they took my studio. I said, I don't have a thing. Can I sleep in your spare room?
1: And that's when you came back to California. Yeah. Oh my goodness! Wow! Wow! Wow!
2: Wow! Wow! I was not a happy camper, and it took a while. You know, I really thought that. You know, I don't know if I can come back from this. When the market crashed, I was actually in New York picking up a couple of jobs. I had three appointments on guys that worked on Wall Street. It's about $3 million worth of work. And I thought, man, I'm going to have a great year.
0: Yeah.
2: You know. And that's when the stock market tanked. Right. I was there. But I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what it meant. So, but these all of these guys canceled all the jobs that they had had me do. So I went from making, you know, $70,000 a month to making zero. And I couldn't make the land payments and the property payments.
1: Oh, how so did everything
2: was foreclosed on in a heartbeat?
1: But it's so hard. Ho- I mean, you're very famous.
2: Doesn't matter. And back
1: then you're very famous. <laughs> and you're homeless. Like, I can't wrap my head around it.
2: Well, I couldn't either. I mean, and I thought. I, I mean, I kept shaking my head. And I think, you know, I'm like one of the highest profile people in the state of Montana and no one's talking to me.
1: That is so
2: you, crazy. You know, the banks who were, were all my friends. I had like, there are five banks in Livingston. I banked, I divided all my money up five ways because they were presidents of the banks were all friends of mine. They, Boy, the minute that happened, they weren't friends of mine anymore. I mean, it just was like, you know.
1: So how do you recover from that? And what, what's going on with the fishing at this point? Are you still fishing during all this?
2: Um, yeah, a little bit. Not not crazily by any means. Uh, but, yeah, well, when I was making the money, I could, I could do whatever I wanted. So I could go to New Zealand. I could go to Russia. I could go to Iceland. I could pay the full tab for everything. So I did. Once it went down, I, you know, it... Was basically homeless for a year. I finally found a place to live out in the country out there, and I I thought, what am I going to do? I mean, I how am I going to how am I going to get out of this? You know, I mean, <laughs> and I didn't think I'd be able. I I mean, I thought, well, that's it. I guess it's you're done. And then I, but I was still, you know, I found a place. Just a just like one thing happened miracle. I found a little studio, and I said, just get it you know and a couple of my clients came back and and so I, I, I had enough money that I could live in a house now it was about the size of this car but it was a house and to pay for the studio and so forth so I just started working started painting every day you know and did you find
1: s- therapy in that does it is it therapeutic for you still
2: I don't know if I'd call it therapy but I have to do it
1: for financial well, I do purposes, it. I have or? to do it
2: for emotional reasons, uh. but I also have to do it for financial reasons. So some of these clients kind of came back, and you know, it was slow. It took them a while because they, they, all well, these rich guys got really scared when that happened. But the really rich guys didn't get hurt. Right. The billionaires didn't take any hit. Trust me on that one. So those are the guys that helped me out. Guys that have so fucking much money that. They can't possibly lose it.
1: So they came back.
2: They came back. And, and
1: when do you start to really feel yourself kind of come back to life?
2: Well, I would have to honestly say it wasn't till a, it really wasn't till a couple, three years ago. But I was, you know, during that time too. I'm afraid that you know I thought it would be a good idea to drink a lot.
1: Did you find that this reflected in your art? Did did your art look a little darker?
2: What I saw was that scared me and the reason I quit when I was writing, I was starting to forget where I was within the story and the paintings. I think I, you know, I don't know that the paintings were affected one way or another. Maybe they were, but I said, you know, if you keep this up, you're not, you're going down. So you better figure it out.
1: I'm going to just be kind of selfish here for a second. But in 2008, I had a bad car accident and I remember people knew who I was. But I was overnight broke and injured and alone and depressed after my car accident. I mean, it's life. But I just remember being so angry at the world because everybody knew who I was. Everyone wanted a photo or an article or gear or a sign, something. It's just everybody wanted to take something. And it's almost like they couldn't imagine that just because they knew who I was that I would be in so much pain. Mm -hmm. Did you go through a situation where you were like, everybody wants something from me? And I can't even get out of bed sometimes. That's right.
2: No, it, it was like, my name was so good in Montana that if I endorsed a, a political candidate, a Democratic candidate for senator or for governor, that guy won. I mean, I I put people in all office, literally. And, you know, when, this, when all this shit hit the fan, you know, they couldn't be bothered. You know, it was like, What what have you done for me lately? And I'm thinking, I mean, I didn't, you know, I didn't dwell on it or anything, but I thought even with when I was making a lot of money, I gave at least half of it away. I supported every charity. Only the ones that I would give to would be the Native Americans and children. Anything that children's hospitals or Native American schools or all, and I gave millions of dollars away. I mean, I really did. Now, those people, I'm sure you know those kind of people understand things how the world is but the but the the fancy people don't
1: what about the fishing community were they there for
0: you
2: well uh yeah i would say so you know i mean i never had a lot of friends i had i had a few really good close friends all of whom are dead now pretty much
1: are <laughs> you still out there fishing
2: Yeah, although, you know, I'm working so hard now. Now that I saw that I could bring myself back, I'm working long hours, seven days a week, trying to, building a big, going to be a very high visibility gallery. And Plus, I've got some huge commissions came back. And, you know, so it's like, I'm going to be dangerous again a year or two. You're already dangerous. (laughs)
1: That's what you were doing today. You were in the studio today before you came out here. Yeah, I was, yeah. And, and are you painting for, can the general public buy your work right now? Or no. is it
2: still years waiting? Well, it's, it, mostly what I do is bought by a few people in advance. But when I open this gallery, there'll be a few little things for sale. And I'm going to, what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to do something that nobody wants to do, which is do reproductions of paintings, digital, you know, I bought the, print, the press and everything. And sell them for what they're worth, which is cheap, which is dirt cheap. So that regular people can get these images. You know, I mean, I've got the rich guys. But what about the rest of the, What about the other 99 and 9 tenths percent of the people? They had nothing for them. Art galleries don't want them. If you can't write a big check, they don't want you in there. Right. You know, so, so I'm hoping that I can recapture the ordinary person market.
1: So I watched you in Rivers of a Lost Coast. And... You guys really got my brain ticking there.
2: Well, yeah, the guy, the young guys that made that film are very cool guys, and they 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 kind of named the, the the Lost Coast after my book, The Angler's Coast. Mm. And it's a it's a sore subject with me because because the fish and game now they call them the fish and wildlife department. God forbid anybody should think there's any hunting or fishing involved, you know. And they're the people who here's how it works the director of the department of fish and game is a political appointee so each new governor appoints a new head of the fish and game well guess what that guy's job is to make sure that whoever donated to the governor's campaign gets what he wants if it's a tomato farmer down in the San Joaquin Valley and he wants more water then he tells the fish and game make sure that that guy gets water so the biologists, the field people, which, are, which always start out honest, the good ones either quit in disgust or are pushed out. So you have all this, all the damage that's been done to the salmon and steelhead is directly related to fish and game not doing their job, you know, doing the very reverse of their job. And I don't know what to do about it because I'm getting blue in the face talking to people about it, and somebody's feet have got to be held to the fire here. You know, because you can't have, we can't, well, we can't keep doing this.
1: Now, what's the organization? Uh, who are the people you were hanging out with the other day? The Russian River organization. Oh,
2: they're the Russian River Wild Steelhead Society. Yeah, um, they they're doing what they can, but they're up against the fish and game. The fish and game keeps sabotaging because they're motivated by by special interests. So they got, so they want to. have the commercial fishermen want more salmon in the ocean. So what do they do? They build a salmon hatchery on the Russian River, which is, which is, and the king salmon is not a native fish of the Russian River. So they're going completely against, you know, what they're supposed to be doing by releasing these fish into streams where they don't belong, where they're not native, trying to get more fish to go out in the ocean so the commercial fishermen can catch them. Well, you know, that's counterproductive.
1: This is going to come across as offensive, and I ask that you bear with me. When I talk to the younger generation, say my generation, I'm 34, and we talk about, you know, the guys, you guys, legendary guys, the guys from the 40s and 50s in California. I always hear people say, you know, those guys they hate they hate the fishery because they've seen a change and they hate having to learn how to use the new gear. And for a long time I was like, yeah, no, you're right. I mean, I've spoken to a lot of the older guys. They don't want to get on a two-handed rod. They they despise shooting hits. But then, as I'm getting older, and I see fisheries around me start to change so much that they're unrecognizable, it's not so much that I can't keep up with the gear. It's not that. It's that I can't stomach seeing how much it's changed.
2: Yeah. Well, it's yeah. It doesn't have anything to do. It doesn't have anything to do with the fishing gear. I think it. What it is is that. Um, I mean, I. I hope and I, I, I presume that some of these younger people are getting the idea that, you know, that we can't keep using the same system that we used before, you know. Um, and in fact, you know, I mean, the, the mentality now is, what damn will we take down next? Well, that's fantastic. In my, a lot of the people, most of the people of my generation are dead, but we were not conservationists in the sense that you need to be a conservationist now, because there were too few of us. Number one, I mean, there were there were so few fl- fly fishermen were there were a few dozen. You know, Do you think that if they that they complained about building a dam on the Russian River, anybody was going to listen? No. You know, because the developers, the housing developers, needed the water to, to so they could build more houses, get water hookups. up. It seems to me that. There is an awful lot of uh, obsession, I, I don't know what else to call it these days, with expensive stuff. You know, I don't get that. You know, it's not supposed to be expensive. It's supposed to be free, <laughs> or cheap at least, you yeah. know. I mean, fishing is supposed to be free, but of course it's not anymore. You know, I mean, you want to catch a Atlantic salmon, it's going to cost you 10 grand. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and you, and then, but, but after you bought the $5,000 worth of gear that the fly guy, shop guy told you to buy, you know, I mean, <laughs> wait a minute, you know, what about walking over to the river? <laughs> well, we can't walk over to the river because we killed all the fish here. Yeah. <laughs> you know.
1: Are you going to settle down in California? Is that the spot you're going
2: to? Pretty much. I mean, I don't know what where else I'd go. This is where I grew up and where I started fishing and painting. And I'm out where I live. It's all protected. It's all ranches. There's no development, and it's all in agricultural protection. Um, so it looks just like it did 70, 80 years ago. Got the fish are gone. That's too bad. But you know, the thing that the thing that that, that really gets me angry is that if we had a fish and game department that actually wanted to bring the fish back, we could, but you got to—you can't have roadblocks in your way. It's got to be, it's not a societal priority at all. I mean, the main body of people in California don't even know there was ever a fish in a river. They could care less.
1: That's really devastating.
2: Yeah, I mean, they just don't, you, you, you know, I mean, I've written a lot of stuff about this and published it in the local papers, and I can tell by the responses that People just don't give a shit. You know, it's like I said in one article. I said, if you put a if you put a steelhead and a silver salmon on a table in the in the city hall civic center, and you know, polled everybody that walked by to if they could tell you what they were, not one person could tell you. Not forget about telling you where they spawned or how they spawned. Or whether they were male or female or whether one was a salmon or one was something. They wouldn't know they wouldn't know any more about that than they do going into the store buying something in a package to cook.
1: Would they have known in the fifties?
2: I don't think I, some more people may have known, but not very many know. It was too obscure. It's just too obscure. I mean think of think of the uphill trail that John Muir was on. I mean Jesus Christ, I mean he's the one guy. He's the only guy, you know, who said, don't build that dam. And then they laughed at him and they said, go fuck yourself. You know, get out of here. He tried to stop the city of San Francisco from damming the Hetch Hetchy Valley, which he he said was even more beautiful than Yosemite. They built a pipeline from the Sierras. That's where San Francisco gets its water. And he said, you can't do that. You know, it's it's, it's the most valuable valley in the Sierras.
1: They hated him, and now
2: he's celebrated. Right?
1: Isn't it funny how that
2: works? Yeah, and and but he's not celebrated by the uh, Donald Trumps of the world. Let me tell you.
1: <laughs> now look, I'm going to let you get out of this hot track. Moving forward for you, because you're still really full of piss and vinegar. <laughs> what uh what's next for you besides coming back with a vengeance? I never think that I never think of you as gone, by the way. Like well, me,
2: I mean, just... I mean I'm not gone. I mean I thought I was, but I'm not. I have you know, I'm gonna re I'm gonna republish the my books that are all out of print. Plus I have two or three new ones that I'm that I've been working on for years that I'm gonna publish. That'll you know, that'll all theoretically rise to the surface, hopefully. Although people don't really buy books anymore.
1: <laughs> You'd be surprised. Well, There's I mean, of some
2: of us do, but but uh, book sales of, of fishing books this used to be fly fishermen were a big market for fishing books. They, these young guys don't buy books at all. But it, that's not going to stop me. I'm going to do it because I want to do it. I'm
1: I can't not... see much of anything stopping you, to be honest. <laughs> Um, is there anything that I haven't thought to ask or that you would like to add?
2: I think I think that just to just for one, just to take two seconds.
1: yeah yeah take it you have all the time ta- in the world.
2: I think that it's it's really interesting because the reason that I use the kind of tackle that I use is I think it's pretty and it's and it's got history and it's I love it because I love to hold it, I love to look at it and so forth. And you know the th- the thing is, as I have managed to go everywhere in the world that I wanted to go, you know, you get into uh, situations, and a lot of it has had to be at different lodges because that's the only way you could get to those, that water. Mm-hmm. Like like on the Russian coast, you can't really freelance it. I mean, you know, it's it's too hard, you know, so you go to the lodge. Well, so sometimes the guides would be Russian, sometimes they'd be young Americans, or if they were Russians... It was really interesting because they because I'd go down there, and they look at what what I'm using. They they didn't know what it was, you know, and they so they would say, "What is this?" You know, I, I said, "What what's it made out of?" And I said, "It's made out of fiberglass." They don't have any idea what that is, and they said, "Is it very expensive?" And I said, "No." I said, "We used to be able to buy this rod when I was young, when I was twenty years old." the the blank that i made i made all these rods the blank was generally between 3 and 5 dollars you know mm-hmm. the reel seat was a buck and a half and the guides were 50 cents and you got yourself a fishing rod you know and i said well now the re- the reels that i have that are 60 70 80 90 100 years old now they're worth a lot of money but that's not why i have them right i've had them for so many years I said, if something's ninety years old and it still works perfectly. I like that.
1: Why change it? <laughs>
2: Why change it?
1: I think you'll find there's a resurgence. I know I dove into the historical tackle over the last little while, and there's a there's actually a little there's a little community yeah, that's come up. Yeah, I out.
2: I kind of found that out too. I went up to uh, where was I? I was I went up to the Russian River a couple two, two or three years ago. And I was going to go shad fishing, even though I didn't realize there aren't any more shad in the river. Oh, wow. But anyway, because the river's dried up, there's no flow to bring them in. Anyway, so I went down to this beach, where there was about four or five guys fishing there. I thought, well, I guess this is where the, they said, oh, there's some shad in here, or whatever, which there wasn't. But anyway, a couple of the guys, three of the guys, all had glass rods. And they saw me, and they said, hey, mister. Can I see your rod? <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm looking, I said, and I saw there, I said, what kind do you have? And the guy says, that's a Fenwick, you know. And I said, really? I said, where'd you get it? And he's, you know, they, they said, well, we thought it'd be cool to get, a, get some old rods. You it know. is, it's <laughs>
1: becoming cool again. Bamboo too, it is, it's starting to become cool again.
2: The whole graphite thing, when it first came out, I uh, was about 19... Um, I wanna say seventy three or four, maybe or five. I can't really remember, but I remember when it happened. And I and um and I had heard about it and some people had called me and so forth. So I called um I told the editor at Sports Illustrated, I said, you know, everybody's talking about this graphite stuff. You know, I said, I should write it I should find out about it and write about it. I was looking i was always looking for something I needed to make some money on. And anyway, so I called, I'd, I'd, I'd known Ray Jeff since he was 10 years old, you know, and my friend, John Tarantino, who was the greatest caster I've ever seen, had been murdered in about that time. And so Ray Jeff had grown, he was old enough by then, I think he was maybe 16 or I can't remember. But anyway, so I called him and I, and I said, what? I do you know anything about this graphite thing? He says, shit. He says, well, I don't. He says, but we're gonna find out because he says, I've got about twenty-five of them that I'm gonna bring over to the pools. And uh he said, why don't you meet me over there? You know, so we came over here, had this rod sticking out all over the place, you know. So we cast them, put lines on them, and we cast them. They were fantastic because they because they were more like a they weren't this you know, ramrod stiff bullshit. They were Really, the the people who made them had been making glass rods and bamboo rods, so they had really great action. And they said, "Well, they're light as a feather, and they cast great." And you know, I I got a, I used them for a few years, but I the reason I quit was they broke so easy.
1: You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Russ, you are a character man. Thank you very much for taking the time to sit in a truck with me on a hot day in San Francisco.
2: Oh, well, it's my pleasure.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening.
0: Wild Country, rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos, speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.